0: the latest episode of the cardiovascular digital health podcast where we interview academics and entrepreneurs at the front lines of digital health. My name is Dr. Hamid Gumbari and I am the deputy editor of the cardiovascular digital health journal. If you like this episode and would like to support our work please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform and leave us a review and visit our website the cardiovascular digital health journal. Welcome to the latest episode of the Cardiovascular Digital Health uh, Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Fu Xiang Ng, who would be talking about his paper titled Neural Networks Applied to 12 Lead ECG to Protect Body Mass Index and Adiposity and Concurrent Cardiometabolic Syndrome. Uh, welcome to our podcast.
1: Thank you, and thanks for inviting me.
0: Well, this was a very interesting paper and generated a lot of interest from our audience. I'm really excited to be having this conversation with you. Um, For our audience, can you tell us a a little bit about who you are, where you're at, and the kind of problems that you work on?
1: Great. So I'm a clinical senior lecturer at Imperial College. So that's sort of the UK term for associate professor. Uh, I'm a clinically trained electrophysiologist, but I spend half my time doing research into uh, arrhythmias and heart rhythm problems, and there's a whole range of uh, approaches that my, my team employs, from doing experiments, optical mapping experiments, looking at fibrillation, straight through to doing invasive studies in the EP lab, and everything in between. And we've recently developed some interest, like many other groups applying machine learning and neural networks to EP problems, which is what I guess we'll talk about today.
0: That's fantastic. Um, and it's it's really exciting to see more and more clinical cardiologists get involved in this field, because you bring a very particular background and um, you really know what kind of important questions clinicians are thinking about. So it's very exciting to see more clinicians really being involved in the field. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the problem that you decided to work on? Why this problem and, um, and kind of your approach to dealing uh, with the data that you were dealing with?
1: Yeah, of course. Uh, one of the questions we are very keen on in our group is to look at this association between obesity and adiposity and arrhythmias. Uh, before we worked on this problem using neural networks on ECGs, We've already been working on a number of other projects in this this field. We've been looking at the role of bariatric surgery in reducing arrhythmias. Uh, We've been doing lots of large database studies looking at the association between fat and arrhythmia. So it's a question that we've been very interested in. And that's on the back of a lot of recent studies showing that potentially weight loss can reduce atrial fibrillation. Uh, there's a lot of data showing weight loss is as good as AF ablation in reducing arrhythmias. And also a lot of background showing that uh, the fatter you are, the more remodeled your ECG, the, the the longer the QT interval or the more dispersed the QT uh, interval is on the ECG. So there's a lot of background to show that being fat is bad for you in terms of arrhythmias. And we know that it's probably mediated through epicardial adipose tissue, so the fat around the heart secretes different uh, paracrine factors that affect the electrophysiology and change the properties of the heart. So on the background of all this growing evidence that being fat directly affects your electric, so not through many other intermediate steps, but directly affects the electrophysiology, we thought, we thought we'd do a sort of proof-of-concept study and say, well, if that's uh, so clear, then can we use the ECG to determine someone's body mass index? if being fat changes your electrics, and clearly there's something in the ECG that can tell us something about someone's body mass index or someone's weight. So we set about taking a large data set, and one of the largest data sets is the UK Biobank, which is uh, consists of around half a million individuals in the UK, very deeply phenotyped, with lots of different tests, including genetics, imaging, ECGs, whole-term monitoring, and of the 500,000, there are about just under 40,000 that have had ECGs, digital ECGs, and clearly they've had uh, all their comorbidities documented as well as their weight and their height. So it's an easy thing to do, very large data set. So we took the data from the Biobank and said, can we train a neural network uh, using these 12 ECGs, digital ECGs from the Biobank, to do a binary classification task, and categorize and predict if someone has a normal weight or has uh, BMI more than 25. Uh, and we use it, uh, it was a combination, it was a truly multidisciplinary effort between the first two joint authors. So, Sin Yang Lee, who's got a computational background, was a postdoc in my group, with Kieran Patel, who's a clinical fellow, pure clinical training, who's got all the input about the questions, and they worked together to uh, address this problem. So, in summary, the headline finding is if you take an ECG and you ask, you train a neural network and say, can you predict someone's body mass index high or normal, you can get an accuracy of around 75% on that binary classification task. So, there's clearly something in the ECG that tells us about someone's weight, potentially tells us something about how much fat you have around the heart. We don't know what it is, but clearly what we can say is this you've got some moderate accuracy just doing a (coughs) binary classification task. So that was the first, I guess, finding of it. It just shows that it is doable uh, and, and the ECG contains some of that information. I guess one question the reader might ask is, so what? Why would you want to go through all that effort to predict someone's body mass index when you've got a patient in front of you, just weigh them and measure the height? And you can somehow get a handle of their BMI. It's certainly a lot easier than recording a 12-day ECG, putting it through a neural network, and then trying to guess the body mass index not very accurately. So I think that's a very important question. It really started off as a proof of concept that it evolved and multiple layers came through in this work. There's previous work from the Mayo Group that used the ECG to predict age. Again, the so what question comes up. Why would you want to predict someone's age from the ECG? Why don't you just ask them when they were born? and you can get their age. Similarly, this, I think, tells us a little bit more about someone's risk rather than uh, just their body mass index because we know body mass index is an inaccurate measure of someone's risk. Firstly, if you're a bodybuilder full of muscle mass, you might have a high BMI compared to someone who's really obese. You get a similar BMI but very different risk. And at the same time, if you have fat distributed in different Regions around the heart, central adiposity versus peripheral in the hips. We know you get very different cardiovascular risk. We thought this is a true readout of how much effect on the end organ of the heart. This might be a better measure than uh, of cardiovascular risk than the body mass index. So that's really the second half of the paper. The first half deals with the proof of concept that we can use the ECG to predict body mass index. And in the second half, which I can go into in more detail is how we use that as a handle on someone's cardiovascular risk that may be a better measure than just the standard BMI calculation of weight and height.
0: No, that's fantastic. And I'm very interested in the details of the paper. So um, maybe we can talk a little bit about the ECG uh, signal that you're using. so, how do you go about taking the digital ECG as an input to your neural network? What 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 um, computations are you performing? How are you compressing that data so the neural networks can make the binary decision?
1: Yeah. So, <clears throat> uh, so as I said, a lot of this was done by someone with true computation expertise. As the clinician in the group, I'll give you my my slightly lay explanation of how how we did it. So, these are digital ECGs that are stored. They are all twelve lead as part of the biobank. Uh, and we sort of did two approaches. Uh, one was to use the single uh, ten lead, 10-second uh, 10 10 trace, which is the entire trace of the ECG that may have different numbers of complexes depending on the resting heart rate. Or the other approach we did was to take a single beat. So you would just take one beat from the ECG, align it to the peak of the QRS, uh, And then what we did was to use short time Fourier transform to extract the temporal and frequency features from the ECG. And as you can see in our paper, we feed that information into this neural network. that We sort of not called it recurrent or convolutional neural network. There's sort of different layers in it where we have convolutional layers as well as recurrent units to try and do with this ECG because we're still unclear which of those is better. I know some groups like CNNs and other groups like RNNs applied to to so one-dimensional data like ECG. And then based on that, we trained it uh, to, you know, we, we told them the, the network, the, the label of each as more or less than 25 and, and trained it to try and do that classification task.
0: So if I understand it correctly, um, the features extracted were the input, not, not uh, you know typical time series type of input that you get from an ECG of amplitude per sec. Yes, correct. Yeah. That, um, so once that's in uh, the once you've kind of compressed the data and it's you're inputting it into your neural network, can you tell us a little bit about the architecture of the network um and the output that's coming out?
1: Yeah. Um so that's a good question. I I, I perhaps we'll have to defer to the sort of postdoc who did a lot of the details on that. I think you can see a lot of that on our on our Figure 1, which I'm looking at now, which tells you a little bit about how we uh, train the network. Um, we, used folds, uh, where we use multiple folds, where we split the data into four different folds, uh, partly firstly to optimize the, the parameters for the model. And then for the model evaluation, we split the folds into three different ways, where we have the four folds split into three different ways, where we trained and validated uh, and then had it's a sort of reserve test set to look at the look at the accuracy which i say was around
0: 75% and the output is a probability a yes. percentage probability for bmi above you know your threshold that you had set correct, correct. yes yeah got it the, okay so that's very clear i think a really interesting um, approach to kind of make that prediction. So um, now I want to kind of spend a little bit of time on the second part, which you mentioned, which is kind of using the BMI to get a sense of your cardiovascular risk. Could you kind of tell us how should we think about that in the context of your paper?
1: Yeah, so having done the first step where we just said, can we use it to predict BMI? We then went on to do a number of different uh, additional uh, bits to the paper. One was to say, we. I, I sort of mentioned briefly that a BMI is a very poor handle of, of cardiovascular risk. So on under UK Biobank, some individuals also have a full body MRI where they have had the adipose tissue segmented and quantified. So we're now not just using body mass index in terms of weight and height, but in the small subset of several thousand, under 10,000, also had an ECG plus an MRI. So we said, can we use this model to just apply to the data from those who have had MRIs and say, how good is it at predicting uh, the amount of uh, visceral adipose tissue you have? I mean, they're all clearly related. The fatter you are, more likely you are to have more visceral adipose tissue but we sort of asked in a slightly different way and say well is it also quite good at predicting whether or not you have above the median or below the median of visceral adipose tissue volumes and again the neural networks did quite well around 75 to 80 percent accuracies in trying to predict whether or not someone had were in the top 50 percent or lower 50 percentile of visceral adipose tissue volumes so that just shows that it does give you a bit of a handle on visceral adiposity and not just body mass index, so we think it's sort of more clear a measure of cardiovascular risk, we then said, okay, well, if that's the case, then does it relate to cardiovascular outcomes and diagnoses? The biobank also has very detailed information about all the uh, comorbidities with ICD coding, ICD-10 coding, so we can say, okay, if the neural network Says that the higher your neural network predicted BMI, do you have greater incidence of cardiovascular comorbidities? So, for example, hypertension, coronary artery disease, diabetes, dyslipidemia. And we're able to show that the neural network predicted BMI uh, has a good correlation with these uh, diagnoses. So, the higher your neural network predicted BMI, the higher your chances of having any of these diagnoses. Now you might say, well that's the same that's the same for the BM, the measured, I call it the measured BMI or the neural network predicted BMI. So yes, so for both the measured BMI and for for the neural network predicted BMI, the if you have higher of either of those numbers, then the more likely you are to have the any of these cardiovascular diagnoses. So we then did the next step. We said, well what about when there is discrepancy? So when the neural network thinks you have a higher BMI than you actually have. So say you have a BMI of 24, but the neural network thinks you've got a BMI of 28 or something high, right? So then the question is, when there is this discrepancy, how uh, what does that mean for the individual? It, does that mean they have higher risk? Because potentially the neural network is seeing something that the body mass index measurement isn't, because it's really looking at the end-organ outcome, which is... The effects on the heart and sure enough there is a there is a good correlation between this what we call the delta bmi the discrepancy between the measured bmi and the uh, neural networked bmi um, and the greater the discrepancy so the higher the neural network bmi is compared to your actual bmi the greater your visceral adipose tissue volume. So there's maybe a lot more fat inside that's causing you risk, causing the end effects that we're not seeing with the BMI calculation that somehow the neural network has a little bit of a window into. We then took this further and said, okay, does this account for the misclassification? So we compared people who are misclassified. So people who are lean or thin, misclassified as fat, what is it about those uh, people and those people have a lot more higher incidence of comorbidity. So these are probably people who have you know, the BMI, the more fat that the BMI is insensitive to picking up because BMI is such an insensitive measure. That potentially, if you use a neural network and apply it to the ECG, you might be able to see more into the 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 risk that is conferred by a adiposity rather than a very simple one might argue, too simplistic measurement of using weight divided by height squared, which which we all agree doesn't really capture the risk. So that was the next step, was we showed that it might work and we then showed that potentially you know, I think it's, it's all proof of concept I, I'm certainly not making uh, we're not saying this is something we should roll out now and, and use it as a risk predictor, but that we're getting some hints with this initial uh, work that it might give us a better handle on risk than, than the standard measurements that we get. And not just BMI, but things like hip-to-waist ratio or all these other anthropometric measures that we use to supplement body mass index.
0: Another area that's um, pretty interesting in your paper is the differences um, in sexes. Um, can you a little spend a little bit of time kind of explaining your observation and potentially the reasons for this observation as well as the consequences of um, you know having this sort of bias introduced to your network?
1: Yeah. Um, so we started by considering males and females uh, separately in the models because uh, we know that the electrophysiology between males and females are different. When we read an ECG, the reference values for QT interval for females is longer than that for males. So that was really a very simplistic motivation. But although, as you allude to, there are probably lots of other good reasons to be thinking about this. We know that there are differences in adiposity, differences in, in in the distribution of fat between males and females. There might be different activity, inflammatory effects of fat between males and females. Those were, weren't the motivation, the reasons. The real reason was, well, we felt, simplistically, the QT interval is different, that we can't bunch them all into one thing. We've got to consider them differently. But having now done the exercise, I think uh, I'm glad we did that, because there's so many, we've learned uh, with the evolving literature that there's so many sex differences, not just in QT interval, but also in how you distribute your fat uh, in your body, how you distribute your fat within the heart, and how that fat affects electrophysiology. So we've, we've from the start, considered them separately and, and therefore repeat, re- we report results for males and females at every step of the way because we sort of train, train different models for males and females.
0: Fantastic. Um, can you comment on how you plan to put this model to use and kind of future work that you're planning um, based on the results that you've seen
1: yeah so i think i said probably two uh, aspects that we might consider one is of course we train this on bmi that we have said is not that great a measure anyway what we really want to do is train the model or refine the model by training it to true visceral adiposity as measured by something like MRI, for which there was not enough, not a lot of data in the biobank. And now as the biobank includes more and more data over the next few years, there might be the opportunity to update this model and try and train it to true visceral adiposity rather than based on the incentive measure of BMI. I think prospectively in terms of testing it, we've got some ideas about potentially rolling this out and trying to look at different groups, uh, in a sort of small perspective way and say, can we look at their, their new network predictor BMI and see you know, what their risk is and what what happens to them over a sort of five-year time course. There's clearly a lot of effort to do, a lot of money to do. We clearly want to secure some funding to go and look at that, but we will want to maybe optimize the model a bit better and then see whether prospectively it might be, might be of any clinical use or application. Because if it is, then... We might get to a stage where you know we think about all these risk scores that we start treatment with statins and aspirin and what is your long term risk this might feed into your long term risk you might have you might this might be a checkbox in your cardiovascular risk score that says what is your predicted long term risk based on the e c g
0: yeah, this is certainly very interesting work, and I think you know with v- very large consequence um, potentially in the clinical realm. So this is, uh, I hope you continue to kind of work along this line. I think there's a lot of questions that still need to be answered. Thank you. Um, so the last little bit of our conversation is um, surrounding uh, Dr. Heng's production function. So I know I kind of want to, you know, you're, you're a busy clinician, you have a lab, you um, you know, you're busy all the time and you remain productive. So can you, you know, kind of walk us through how you actually, you know, do all the things that you do? You know, how, what does your day look like? How do you structure your day so that you can be as productive as you can be?
1: Yeah, I think, uh, as you rightly say, it's always a challenge for those of us that try and juggle a number of different things, but it's what keeps us interested. It's what keeps us motivated. I think mean, that many of us that want to do, uh, more than one thing. So you're right, So I, I do combine the clinical activity with research and this, in addition, quite a bit of teaching within the university. Um, I think, so a, a typical day, I, I, I spend 50% of my time doing clinical work. So that means running an arrhythmia clinic as well as doing uh, weekly lists where I do ablations and implant uh, devices. I spend the other half of my time doing many of these academic activities that include supervising a number of PhD students and postdocs, uh, which really means having lots of meetings, which paradoxically has been made easier with with the pandemic, because now we don't all have to be at the same space, whereas it used to be very difficult for me to juggle clinical with research. It's a lot easier now that we've all got Zoom and Teams and, and Skype and all these other ways of keeping in touch with colleagues and and uh, supervising students and postdocs that way has, has made things a lot easier. But that's sort of the the way I split the week. I think um, in terms of productivity, I guess one way is to... You know, I do a lot of multidisciplinary research. You may have already grasped that there's a range of activities from basic science to clinical science to something like AI. And I, I think... Uh, as may have come through in some of my answers, I am not the expert on every single question in my group. So I always say to them, look, I don't have all the answers. I come from my perspective as a clinician scientist. And there is a bit of uh, trust going on within the group. Everyone brings their own expertise. You find the right people and you let them you let them do what they're good at. So this work is a great example of that. I I, I would my hand up and say as the clinician scientist here, Questions were generated by myself and some of the interpretation, yes, but I'm not the guy who who trained the neural network and I think if you run a team that has very diverse expertise and you get the right people and you sort of trust them to to what they do what they're good at, that's potentially how you can be productive in this sort of very multidisciplinary type research, and that's something that i I try and stick to
0: so do you do you wake up early in the morning How, how early does your day start?
1: So yes, I mean think with, with a two and a five-year-old, uh, mm. I wake up when they wake up, which is really quite early in the morning. So they're going through a phase where they wake up at 5.30 or 6.00. So I wouldn't say it's super early, but early enough to get the day started. Uh, the other thing, of course, is balancing home life. Uh, we, know, we, we all work hard. and uh, With a young family, I'm trying to... You know, One of my New Year's resolutions, uh, my daughter made me promise was to spend more time playing with her before she goes to bed. So, so that's also part of the productivity consideration that I'm having to throw, throw, into, throw into the equation.
0: Uh, do you schedule writing time? Or is it just like whenever you have downtime?
1: Uh, it's something I've done recently. So it's a really good question. I, I think up until the era of Zoom, it was a lot easier to find time to write. I think now, because any time can be a time for a call, and anyone can just say, can we have a quick call? I quickly find that my diary is full of calls. So it's good thing you mentioned that. I got to a stage where I've had to block the diary out and say no calls and no meetings, which is not something I've ever had to do up until the pandemic. But now, because it's a double-edged sword, this whole Zoom Teams thing can really take over your life. And all you do is spend... The entire week either doing clinical work or sitting in front of the computer doing meetings and never writing any papers or grants. So I've had to belatedly become more disciplined and say no meetings today and tomorrow and and, and stick to it but but then when I do it I still occasionally give in to a meeting or two but that's better than having the, the whole day full of meetings. Sorry, I may have lost you. I don't know whether uh, I've lost audio from my end. Can you
0: hear me? I oh, sorry about that. No, I can
1: hear you now. Yeah.
0: Um, no, this has been uh, really um, fantastic conversation. Your work is very important, and we're looking. I'm really looking forward to reading more about. It um uh, you know the next phase of this project thank you so much for spending the time with me today
1: great and thank you for inviting me it was a pleasure